Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Arthur B. Brown, a keyboardist, singer, and composer who has spread his talents across the musical genres of funk, soul, and hip-hop. An original member of the early 1980s P-Funk spin-off band Kiddo, his other credits include Rose Royce, Mickey Howard, Patrice Chocolate Banks, New Birth, Slave, Drew Hill, and Ice Cube. Arthur, how are you? Thank you for joining the show. Oh, man, I'm great, man. Can't complain. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, 2020, uh, not sorry to see it go, right? <laughs> Yeah, man, I can't wait. I can't wait on that to come to a something. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone feels that way. Have you been able to, uh, you know, do anything musical uh, during this downtime? I'm uh, basically recording. A lot of recording sessions and stuff like that, working on my own project. You know, but I haven't really done any shows, maybe two. Yeah. Since this, yeah. Yeah, it kind of slowed everything down. Yeah, I miss those shows. So you know, and uh, also feel bad for all the artists and supporters of the artists that are you know going through this. So hopefully, real soon, we'll see some daylight. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. 
So where are you coming to us from from today, Arthur? Excuse me. Where where are you? Where are you today? Where are you coming from? Oh, I'm I'm at home in Long Beach, California. Long Beach. Yeah. So you're you're a homebody, right? That's where you're from originally, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yep. This is it. Yep. A whole group is from here, basically. Kiddo. Yeah. So I'm from Southern California too, born uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, just moved Ooh. out out to the East Coast uh, about 12 years ago. But you know, my heart. You know, I'm still represented here, and uh, yeah, that's right. I got you. Heart is still right that's there, right. and you know, I, I grew up going to so many of those uh, funk shows at the Long Beach Arena, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, I first seen New Birth at the Long Beach Arena when I was a teenager. Wow. <laughs> so I saw uh, Prince's 1999 tour there. I saw. Yeah, Rick, I was there. Art, where really? I was there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I saw um, Rick James there, uh, like yeah. street songs. Yeah. I saw, um, I was there uh, for the Run DMC riot in like 86. I missed that show, but I heard all about it because I, I was at home. Yeah. Well, you were, you were smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I was just nice. glad, glad to get out of that one alive. All right. Yeah, yeah, there's some things going on. Yeah, that was crazy, but uh, good memories though overall for sure. Um, oh, yeah. So, what was it like, you know, growing up there for you, and and how and when did you move toward music? Um, I started playing. Well, I started trying to play piano when I was like six years old. And um, my parents had a piano in the house, but but nobody really played it, you know. And I started just doodling on it and listening to the radio, trying to figure out how to play stuff that was on the radio, you know. Every day when I would get home from school, and I, you know, eventually I figured it out enough to play some songs. By the time in like first or second grade, I would perform for the classroom at school and stuff like that, you know. But yeah, that's where I started. Right, right in Long Beach. So, and, and what was it about, you know, keyboards that were really appealing to you, and who were some of your influences? Uh, well, the first influence I had, I guess, was Ray Charles, because basically back then that was all that was on the radio, you know, a lot of blues stuff. And uh, so, so I would say that originally with Ray Charles, and then later on Billy Preston and Stevie Wonder. Mm. Yeah, but I always wanted to play a clavinet like Billy Preston did, you know, and all of this stuff in Stevie. So I would say that was that was my main influence. Uh, yeah, I just love the sounds they had, you know, out of space and the Stevie yes. stuff. Oof. Wow. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that was about it. And I also played in church as well when I was young. I started playing playing in church. What about the singing part of it? We um, we put our first band together when I was in junior high school, and nobody in the band was singing yet. You know, we weren't singing or anything. We just knew how to play, and we backed up a lot of singing groups. You know, different local bands. I mean, local singing groups in the city, and um, and they had to sing because we couldn't get any shows because we couldn't sing. So we basically learned how to sing 
listening to the singers that we back there. And 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 once we figured out how to sing, we didn't use the singers anymore. We just started doing our own shows. So that's basically how I listening to other singers that we played behind. Did you feel comfortable doing that or did it take some time? Oh no. I still don't really feel that that comfortable. <laughs> You know, but uh, but I eventually got over it. You know, I got I got over that fear of it. But, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable playing and singing. I could play and sing. It's a little more comfortable for me that way. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, New Birth. Uh, w w was that the first you know like solar funk concert you went to, or was there one before that that you know inspired you? The first concert I ever went to was James Brown at the Long Beach Arena. And it was him, believe it or not, Bill Cosby was on the show, okay. and uh, um, the Young Hearts were on the show at the Long Beach Arena, and that was the first funk I ever seen, and I was I was just sprung after that when I saw that. I, that was it. A any yeah. idea about what year that might have been? I had to be like... I must have been, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud it just came out. It had to be 64 or somewhere oh, late, around there. Late, later than that, if that was just out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it had to be 65 or somewhere like that. I might have been in junior high, maybe or something like this, but yeah, that's when I, that was the first concert I ever went to. Wow. <laughs> And did you start going to a lot of shows after that, or just sporadically? You know what's funny? It was a long time before I went to another concert. But our band that that we had back then was actually to become kiddo later on. So we started in junior high school. And, uh, and we started going to concerts together. And when we got old enough to get a driver's license, I started driving my mother's car because she had got a new car. So we would dress up like we were on the show. And we would drive in through the backstage gates and stuff and bring our guitars and all of this stuff with us so that we could get in each concert for free. That's what we were doing. And we got in the Long Beach Arena like that a couple of times. The first time we told them we were Willie Hutch's band. <laughs> Willie Hutch was on the show. And, and we drove the car through the gate. They let us in. We took the guitars out of the trunk of the car. And everything, and they let us go right in. You know, we got backstage passes, and then we went into the audience. And that's how we would get in concert. How'd you get your <laughs> instruments back, though? Huh? Well, we just took them with us. Uh, <laughs> took them in the audience. <laughs> just the guitars, you know, because I didn't have no keyboard in that with you. you know, we, we just had our shoulder bags and our guitars. Wow. And they believed it. <laughs> wow, that was kind of ingenious, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did it once at the Long Beach Arena, and we did it once at the Greek Theater. <laughs> yeah, why mess around? I mean, I could see us trying to pretend that you're a roadie, you know, but to actually pretend you're one of the acts, that's pretty cool. Yeah, because we told them we were Willie Hutchins' backup band. And so when we got to the door, they had a list of everybody that was on the show, and when they seen Willie Hutchins, yeah, they just started seeing <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. So, 
So, so you're saying, uh, Arthur, that it was the precursor of Kiddo, basically. What was uh, the group called back then? Soul Express. <laughs> we were the Soul Express band. And were you doing all covers or any original stuff? Just all covers at that time. Nothing but covers. Mostly war because they were from Long Beach, too. <laughs> so, so we thought we were war, so we... We we had learned a lot of their song, and a, and a bunch of other stuff. Did you get the to the very first song we learned? Excuse me. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, the very first song that we learned how to play was "One Bad Apple" by the Osmond Brothers. <laughs> that was the first song we learned as a band. I'm I'm guessing it might have been a little funkier though. Yeah. I, I can't really remember. We tried to play it as close as we could, but but we still couldn't sing yet. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't singing. <laughs> did you Did you guys yeah. ever get to meet any of the uh, guys in war? Oh yeah, because they were rehearsing down on this street called Hill Street in Long Beach. It was about a mile from my house, and it, it was just a little storefront place that they was down there. And they recorded their first album inside of this little place. And they had a mobile studio that was parked outside in the front. And they piped all the tables and stuff from this truck into the studio. And I would go down there and park and listen to them record that whole first album. And they took the album cover photo at this liquor store that was right around the corner. So they moved out when they started getting rich and famous and started seeing Maseratis and stuff down there. They moved out and they moved up to Hollywood. And I went to the building and asked the owner, did he still want to rent it out to another band? And, and um, he said yes. And he only charged us. He said, I'm going to charge you the same thing I charge you for, $50 a month. And we moved in there. Because we thought that if we moved in there, we would just, because we thought this building had some kind of magic. I don't know what we thought. But, but yeah, we, we moved in there. And occasionally, one of them would come down there to see us, you know, because they knew about us. You know, we were, we were young. You know, but they never would, you know, really gave us, you know, the clip up. They kept saying, you guys are going to make it, man. Just keep doing what you do. You know, and and we stayed there until we got a record. You know. Following in uh, Royalty's footsteps there. Huh? I said following in Royalty's footsteps there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. I'm good friends with the drummer right now. He moved back to Long Beach, Harold. He stays downtown by the ocean, and, and uh, Harold Brown, and he's still around. Really, yeah. really nice guy. You know? Yeah, Harold yeah. Howard. Yeah, talk about that. Huh? So Harold uh, and Howard and, right. and and Lee were on the show a while back. So yeah, very cool guys. Really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. They were. Uh, we came in that little place down there. Then after we moved out, everybody was trying to get in there because they thought that it was something in there, you know. But the guy stopped, he stopped bringing the building out because people started trying to live in there, you know, for $50 a month. That wasn't going to happen. You know. So was anyone part of the group back then that uh, was later part of what became Kiddo? I mean, who was in it that we would know? Me and Donnie Sterling and uh, Rock, the drummer, we're still together. 
the three of us that started the group. So you met both of them in school? I I lived next door to Rock the drummer when he was three years old and I was like six. And my mother used to babysit him. So that's how I met him. And then this guitar player came from New Orleans, but he didn't stay in the group that long. But Donnie, the lead singer that was with T-Phone, the guitar player found him on a bus stop with his guitar somewhere when he was like 14. And he told him to come over to my house because we, we were rehearsing in my parents' garage. And then he came over and he couldn't sing yet either. He, he just knew how to play guitar. And uh, so me and him and the drummer are still together. We stayed together all of those years, you know, until we, we got hooked up. So at some point, uh, Donnie connected with P-Funk. Um, how did that happen? And, and where were you during that? We had went to Japan for the first time in 1977 to do a show at some club. We were doing cover songs, you know, and we were there for six months. And Donnie had met Malia Franklin, which was a female singer in Parlette. And uh, I, I introduced them and stuff, and they started dating. So when we went to Japan, she was still, in, she was still singing with George and all of them. And George needed a bass player. So naturally, she told George about Donnie. You know, but we were in Japan working. So George started calling the club over there in Japan to try to get Donnie to come back. You know, some of the band members was like, no, nah, man, but you can't do that. You know, man, you know. So I told him to go, go, go ahead on and take, take the chance. And if something happened, come back and we'll hook back up. You know, so he went back there and we got another bass player. And um, Donnie stayed there for, I think, two or three years back in Detroit. And, and then after that, he came back. And uh, that's when we became Sterling Silver Starship Band. Because George George Clinton had uh, had Donnie, he told Donnie to put a band together. So Donnie said, "Well, I already got a band for Donnie. you know." So that's when we became Sterling Silver, and and that's how we got hooked up. And and from there we got the record deal at uh, because George George Clinton brought us to A and M Records to try to get the Sterling Silver deal, and he hooked it up. But they said the name was too long that nobody would remember that name, you know, Sterling Silver Star Band. So our manager came up with Kiddo. And he said it was real short, it'd be easier for people to remember, and that's how we became Kiddo. Who had come up with the other name? What, Sterling Silver Starship? Yeah. George Clinton did because Donnie's name was Donnie Sterling. So oh. he figured that, that would be a good name. You know, Donnie was writing and producing stuff before. So he became the band leader at that point. And, uh, and we, we released the first album, album, and then we started touring. I, I remember, Arthur, seeing uh, Donnie's and the Sterling Starship band's name on several P-Funk records before Kiddo finally happened, yeah. you know? Right, exactly. We didn't have a record deal yet. Some of the songs, Agony of Defeat, was supposed to have been a Kiddo song. But we didn't have a record deal yet, so it, it went on T-Funk album. You know, it's Sterling Silver Starship. Like, uh, uh, all of that stuff that was on the Funk Family series, stuff that was by Sterling Silver Starship was our songs. But 
but we didn't have a deal, so George couldn't release it as you know, chill or anything. Were were during that time leading up to it? Were you were you getting uh, impatient or frustrated at all, or wondering if it was going to happen? We were when it first started to happen. We were gigging in Vegas at this hotel, and um, this guy that was booking us, he was the same guy that was booking us in Japan. And um, we met this guy named Greg Shelser that had a recording studio in Westlake up in Hollywood. And uh, some girl that came to see us at this club, and she she knew him, and she went and got him because they were all in Vegas at the time. And she said, you got to come see this band. So she brought him down to the club, the hotel. And uh, he seen us, and he loved us, and he told us that he had a studio in Hollywood. And when we finished our month or whatever it was, to give him a call, and he would start recording because I think he had produced or discovered Babyface and got him hooked up with his deal and boys and all these people. So when we got back, he took us straight in the studio and we started recording. And at that same time, Donnie had just got back in town. So that's when everything started coming together as, you know, the the P-Funk thing. You know, and... Uh, what were your first impressions of meeting, you know, some of those guys like George and Gary Scheider and those characters? Man, um, because we, uh, when we first met George and Archie Ivy, the road manager and all these people, we were gigging at a club in Inglewood in L.A. And they came down when we first was about to get the record deal. They came to welcome us to the P-Funk family, per se, or whatever, and, and that's when we met a couple of them. And we had always seen them on television and heard their record and stuff, but we didn't think we would ever be affiliated in any kind of way, you know, because it was a different kind of a situation. But when we became kiddo, Mike Hampton joined our band because we, we, we didn't have a guitar player. And uh, uh, Mike Hampton came out here, and the manager brought him out here, and we had to stay together, me, him, and the bass player with him in Long Beach. And uh, that's why his picture's on the first album that we did. And he stayed until Atomic Dog got released. And when that got released, George came and stole him back. <laughs> and it took him, I came home one night, and all of Mike's stuff was just gone. <laughs> you know, somebody handed Mike some money. You know, and Mike was gone. <laughs> but we ended up hooking back up on the Atomic Dog. Actually, I have a copy of this here. So this is, uh, we'll put on this camera. Yeah. There's the uh, first cover from 83. And uh, there's Mike. And uh, on the back, there are labels. So there's uh, Arthur right there. Uh, makes it easy. <laughs> and, and Donnie and the rest of the guys. Um, you know, when you guys uh, did this, though, and I mean, I'd heard this, I think I'd had Tom Vickers on, and he talked about how A&M really, you know, kind of rolled out the red carpet for you guys. I mean, they invested a lot in the band, yeah. and um, it was really a, a pretty auspicious uh, start you guys had with, with A&M. Yeah, 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 it was, man. Tom is my guy, man. Tom is cool. <laughs> He's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, he really got us hooked up too. There with and he had a lot to do with that. The finalization of everything over there. 
Wow. What, what was it like when you got in the studio and, um, you know, started laying down tracks for this record? You had some really, like, uh, great producers on it and other really uh, top-notch collaborators. Yeah, um, well, at first A&M told us to find who we wanted to produce our album, the first album. And we went to a couple of people, and there was a lot of people that wanted to. Larry Blackman wanted to produce our first album, you know, but we listened to some of the other groups that he had produced, and most of them sounded like Cameo. Yeah. You know, we didn't want to sound like Cameo, so, you know, we ignored that. And then um, what's the guy that produced um, Enchantment? Michael Stokes. Uh -huh. He wanted to produce us. And, and for for whatever reason, he didn't do it, and he ended up producing Ozone, I think it was, or something. And uh, so a and Records said, well, we're just going to get the producers, and they got Reggie Andrews and Ndugu because they had just had a platinum record but let it whip. So they figured they were the hottest producers in the country at that minute. You know, so they came and they produced the, the first album. Yeah, then... They were real cool to work with in the studio. They were, they were great because I had already heard heard about them, you know, and uh, they were real easy going, and we got a lot done. You know, it came out all right. And they were on fire at that time. I mean, that, I think that was right around the time or just before Juicy Fruit and uh, yeah, M Two May stuff. So yeah, all of that stuff was out at that time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you guys took off with, uh, you know, Try My Lovin'. Um, that was a hit before the album was probably out even, right? Yeah. Yeah, it came out. It, it, it was the first single. And it it did good. <laughs> yeah, but then and we followed with another single, Give It Up. And then I think they released the album after that. Yeah, so... Did, did you guys tour? Did, did you guys tour with uh, P Funk at all before? Because um, I saw you guys at that Beverly Theater gig. Uh, really? Yeah, I was there. Man, yeah. Uh, we had toured with Lakeside and Cameo before that. We did a couple of dates with them, and uh, uh, what was the other band that made um, that came out of Detroit? Oh man, I can't think of their name. They made um, not Juicy Fruit, but we took with S O uh, oh S O S band. We, we did some stuff with them, Lakeside and Cameo, and a couple other groups, and then the Atomic Dog tour. Was yeah. that was that weird at all with Mike? <laughs> you know what was funny? Now this is really was funny because we were mad at Mike when he left. We were hot because we were scheduled to play the Long Beach Arena. Show was coming up, and they were already advertising it. And we were on on the show. This was going to be our first big Long Beach appearance. And Mike left, and our manager canceled us off of the show because we didn't have a guitar player. Hmm. And we wanted, and everybody, him to me, everybody was on this show. It was like seven or eight groups on this show. So we were mad, you know. But we didn't ever think we'd see Mike because Mike was from Ohio. You know, he was from uh, Cleveland. 
and he didn't think he'd see us no more either. But right after that happened, George called us to be opening act on the Atomic Dog Tour. So Mike had to face us, and and the first show was in Phoenix, Arizona. And we couldn't find Mike. He was, uh, he was in the arena, but he was dodging us. And you know, we hadn't seen him yet. So our manager told us, don't argue with him. Don't, you know, don't say nothing. Because if, if you guys start some trouble, George is going to take us off the tour. So we said, okay. So just before it was time for us to go on, Michael came into the dressing room. And he apologized, you know, and said that uh, he understand that we were mad. And if we wanted to punch him in the face, we could punch him in the face. <laughs> You know, we made up and, you know, and hugged it out. And, and after that, we just went out there and did what we came to do. And we had got a new guitar player that was fired. This guy named Brian, uh, Brian Miller. So we had to get somebody hot because Mike had just left. You know, and Mike was murdering, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. You know, we we had a good a, a, a good run with that. You know, and I talked to Mike a couple of months ago. I think he called me. Yeah, he's back in Pennsylvania now. But yeah, but we still talk and hang out and sometimes whenever he's in town out here, you know. But yeah, yeah it was good. Well, of course, he's a he's one of my favorite all-time soloists, um, lead players. Yes. But there wasn't that much lead on that kiddo album. It was mostly rhythm, you know, stuff, really, for guitar. Right. Right. There wasn't no lead. There wasn't no lead at all, really. And that was, I guess that was A&M Records, you know, because when it, was, when it was all over, they really didn't want us to be, they, they had promoted us as a P-Funk group, you know, but they really didn't want us to sound like people or anything like that, you know. You know, in the end, we had a lot of stuff, the Sterling Silver stuff that we had recorded sounded like Parlor type stuff, you know, and some of the stuff that we never released. But, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, they didn't really have any lead guitar, but we let Mike do it live. Right. He did it live on the show. Yeah, the, kid, the kiddo was more about the synths and the, and the rhythm guitar and, and the bass and, and stuff and not so much on horns and stuff like that like the P-Funk was. Yeah. Um, we, when we were Sterling Silver Starship, we had a three-piece horn section. Even when we went to Japan the first time, we had, we already had three horns. But A&M Records, at the time we got signed, they didn't, the horn section thing was kind of going out, you know, in the new wave. Punk so they were, all of those groups were just using one saxophone. So A&M got rid of our trumpet and trombone player, and they kept the sax. And that's how we ended up with the one sax and the rhythm set. But we had a horn section. You know, but uh, to me, I think we were at our hottest with the section. You know, with Sterling Silver, which was cool. But yeah, they, uh, they just altered a few things, but it all worked out good, you know. So, you know, when you're talking about influences and, and moving a little away from P-Funk on that, I felt like um, I could hear some other influences in that album, like, you know, Rick James and, and that kind of like stuff that was happening at the time. I definitely yeah. felt like it was like right in sort of that lane, you know? Right. And uh, 
a, a, a little bit of the time also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> did, did you guys ever get on any bills with either of those acts? Um, but, uh, no. We met Rick James. They had a meet and greet for us in Rick James one night up in LA. That, uh, it, it, was, it was okay, but Rick James was kind of different. You know, <laughs> you know, and stuff. But he showed up and he had his entourage with him. He had, you know, an entourage of a whole gang of females and guys. And it was cool, you know, but we never got to perform on the same bill. You know, I got to perform with a lot of those people with Rolls Royce. You know, but not with kiddo. Like uh, Michael Nash and some of those guys. Yes, and uh, and Michael Nash came from our band Above and Beyond. Oh, is that right? He was the original keyboard player in that band, and when he left and joined Rolls Royce, I took his place. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, so. Well, and when I finally got in the group, we were playing together, you know, and uh, and I really got to know him and and you know, stuff because I, had, you know, I had already knew him from above and beyond. And then our guitar player joined Rolls Royce. He's the one that got me the job at Rolls Royce, the guitar player. Yeah. So what year was that about? This was '84. Okay. Because Kiddo had disbanded in '84, we we had disbanded. We had a real bad tour down south and stuff, and uh, and uh, because we did the Old English 800 Mount Liquor tour down there, you know, we were all with the black colleges down there. We did North Carolina, uh, Florida, Georgia, all down in there, you know, Grambling, and uh, and after the band disbanded briefly. Uh, the guitar player called me and said that they needed a keyboard player in Rolls Royce. Michael Nash had left, I think, to do some stuff with Bette Midler or something. And uh, that's when I came in Rolls Royce. And then Nash came back and we were using two keyboard players. Interesting. For the first time we were there. But let me. And uh, still Excuse me? I was going to say, let me. I want to back up a moment, though, and just talk about that second uh, Kiddo album, though, too. Um, oh, yeah. What, what, um, you know, it came out just uh, a year later, uh, Action. What, uh, what yeah. was different about that experience compared to the first album? We had a little more control over the stuff that we put on the album with the first one. The second album was produced by John Barnes. And at the time, he was working with Michael Jackson. So he, he had a lot of tracks that was left over from the stuff that he was recording for Michael that Michael didn't want. So he was trying to get us to do these songs. So that, you know, because the songs were already recorded and he didn't really have to spend any money, I guess, on the uh, production. And uh, some of the stuff was really good. And some of the stuff he played was just, I mean, John Barnes was an absolute monster on keyboard bass, the synth bass things and stuff he was doing. And uh, so it was a it was a little different. We were recording in a way bigger studio out in the valley, and uh, and uh, the the music was different. I like I loved a lot of the stuff that was in the second album too. Really. You know, 
and that was a good experience. We had a lot of different people in that album, Bernie Royale and all of these kind of, kind of people were in there too, playing. Actually, I have uh, credits here, but I don't see Bernie listed. Bernie was on there. It was on the back of the app. It was inside of the sleeve. I see him. I see him here. Yes, yes, yes. He's listed right after you. Yeah. Yeah, Bernie was on there. Derek Nakamoto from the group Hiroshima was on there. There was a lot of people on there. What, what can you tell us about Bernie? Bernie was, he was the wizard, complete keyboard wizard, man. He was, to me, he was, uh, he was a genius with what he did, the way he, because he was classically trained, but he knew how to utilize that synthesizer in a way that nobody had ever utilized synthesizer sounds like that in the song before. He just, he, he just had a whole different, he brought a whole different sound upon it completely. Nobody sounded like that. You know, he is, he is, he was a real he was a really nice guy also. You know, he was a nice guy and he could play and he'd show you whatever you needed to you know, if I asked him to show me what he was doing or what he was using on this or that, he he would do it. You know, he was a nice guy. No ego, right? None at all. None at all. And most people that's on that level, you can't even talk to, you know, a lot of these people that are, people that are out there like that. Yes. I noticed on that record, um, and I think on the first one too, you had uh, some good backup singers too. Jim Gilstrap, who's been on this show, and Marva King, and you know, right, and, and the Waters. Mm -hmm. Waters. What's funny, one of the Waters females that was singing on the album, he stays next door to the drummer now in, uh, from Kiddo Rock. And one of the other girls, uh, her name was Marlena Jeter that sung on the Kiddo album. She sung some back now. We were in the same junior high school talent show together in junior high school. And I hadn't seen her since junior high school, and she was in the studio, and I didn't recognize her. At, at first, she kept hearing people call me Arthur. She said, are you Arthur Brown? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, from Franklin Junior High. You know. Yeah, so that was kind of deep, too. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I, I noticed yeah. also on that album, The Action Speaks Louder Than Words, uh, was uh, actually ran by Chucky Booker and uh, Kipper Jones. and. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That was before they were really rolling you know right yeah i've been doing chucky a long time because he's from san pedro and uh he played boards and i played board and this other guy rex silas that was with tease and all of them from pedro and uh i'm i'm still still in touch with him and kipper here and there i talked to kip yeah yeah that was a hot cut I was just talking about Tease because I had Ollie Brown on, and um, man, Tease was a badass band that I couldn't believe they never got over. I'm telling you the truth, because that one cut they had, Firestarter, 
Lakeside wrote that cut, and it sounded like Lakeside. It should have been a Lakeside cut because Tease needed. Chucky could have wrote for Tease, man. They would have. They would have blew up. I'm sure, man. They were great. They were great. The bass player lives in Long Beach, also. Uh, Cornelius Mims. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.